You've heard of Grammarly, and you might think it's a fancy spell check, but people on your team have been using it and loving it for years because it does way more than you realize. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that works seamlessly across apps and websites and can write an instant first draft in a few clicks, not a few hours. When every word your team writes is clear, concise and on brand, companies can save 19 days per employee per year. Learn what better writing can do for your company at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said, done. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. From the heart of where innovation, money, and power collide, in Silicon Valley and beyond, this is Bloomberg Technology with Emily Chang. Chang in San Francisco, and this is Bloomberg Technology. Coming up in the next hour, a concierge startup that is shaking up city living. We'll talk to the women behind the company Alfred about why they see big opportunity and what they think about their early investor, Adam Newman, starting a different company that may be trying to get in on that, too. Plus, Peloton on Amazon, the struggling bike maker, puts its bikes on the world's largest e-commerce site for the first time ever. Could it be the key to ending the slump? We'll discuss. And how did one of the biggest deals of the year come together? We will go inside the $70 billion Microsoft Activision deal with Microsoft Gaming CEO Phil Spencer. Here to talk more about Peloton's partnership with Amazon is Wedbush Managing Director Dan Ives. Dan, what do you make of this? I mean, until now, you could only get these bikes directly from Peloton. Now you can get them on Amazon. Is it going to open the floodgates? Look, I think it's a start in the right direction. I mean, the direct-to-consumer model, clearly it's been an uphill battle for Peloton, especially coming out of the pandemic. They had to do something. And if you're going to bet on someone, I think Amazon was the right move. But now it's an execution story going forward. And I think the street really needs to see that. So, you know, obviously Peloton has to work through, you know, multiple other issues. They're, you know, working on this, you know, send the bike, you put it together yourself. Someone maybe can help you put that bike together. Does that make it all a little complicated? I think it does, and that's part of the problem. I mean, a typical Peloton buyer, they don't want complexity. They want simplicity. And obviously they've had some significant misses from product perspective on treadmill and some others strategically now they're cutting costs look and i think that's part of the issue too is that as you're in growth mode cutting costs especially with the competition come from all angles gyms and other sort of fitness i mean this is clearly going to be a very very bumpy path i think this is a step but obviously it's really baby steps in terms of what they need to do many people are going to buy a Peloton on Amazon that didn't go to Peloton directly? 
Look, I think it's probably low single digits, and I think it's really more about accessories or maybe part of the ultimate flywheel or ecosystem they're trying to build. It just comes down to that direct-to-consumer model. I think writing was in the wall. They need to change. Look, I think it's the first step. I could definitely see some more partnerships down the road, but right now, I mean, they're on the whiteboard trying to figure out what could ultimately move growth. And I think when it comes to Amazon, especially they had their ears open, it, it made a ton of sense strategically, I think, for both. What do you make of the speculation about Amazon as a potential buyer here? Oh, I think that's just more speculative. I mean, I would be uh, just flabbergasted if they went after it. Wouldn't, strategically, it just does not make sense in, in terms of them going down that route. You know, I think that's why this is more of a partnership. And I think the problem with Peloton now is that that M&A chatter is obviously, you know, fallen. And I think it really comes down to strategically what they're going to do. I, I continue to think when it comes to Amazon, it's more partnership. And it, and it really it stops there. All right. Uh, let's talk a little bit about Tesla. Shares rising ahead of that three for one stock split. You know, how much of a difference is this really going to make? Well, obviously, to the retail community, they're going to look back. August 2020, the five for one, what the stock did since then, you know, but it, clearly a different market, but but no doubt. I mean, they're doing it at a time that you're really starting to see demand continue to be firm, despite what we're seeing in terms of storm clouds. And it's really production, production story in China. That's the key of the Tesla story. They do not have never had demand issue. They have a supply issue. And I think that's starting to get rectified. But I do believe the stock split. You know, it really feeds the appetite of retail, and it was a smart move. Meantime, you know, another little Twitter kerfuffle between Elon Musk and a customer replying to a customer that was critical of this beta driver assistance feature. Musk basically saying, I don't want to hear about it in so many words. What do you make of this? It's not what you want to see. I mean, I think Twitter, as we know, there's been positive, but obviously a lot of negatives when it comes to Musk, and especially with more and more scrutiny, you know, from FSD to some of the other areas that we're seeing on Tesla. You don't want to see this type back and forth. The street just wants the execution, production ramp, and obviously much more of the software model uh, take hold. And I think that's why things like this become sideshows. But again, it's uh, you know, Musk goes to be a different drum that's not going to change. All right, Webbush Managing Director, Dan Ives. Dan, thank you. What if everyone at work were an expert communicator? What if every doc, message and email they wrote was perfectly clear and concise? Inbox numbers would drop, customer satisfaction scores would rise, and everyone would be more productive. That's where Grammarly comes in. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that understands your business and can transform it through better communication. Companies that use Grammarly save an average of 19 days per employee per year. That's because with Grammarly's AI, what used to take a few hours only takes a few clicks, like generating an instant first draft in your company voice or tailoring a message to your specific audience and goals. And Grammarly's personalized on-brand writing help is built in everywhere your team works, across 500,000 apps and websites. Plus, it's safe, secure, and already IT-approved. Join 70,000 teams who trust Grammarly with their words and their data. Learn more at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said. Done. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? 
And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. scene is still in the midst of a big debate about funding and second chances. This after Andreessen Horowitz wrote its biggest check ever to WeWork co-founder Adam Newman for his new real estate venture, Flow, a company portrayed in a recent Forbes article as being awfully close to another company he invested in two years ago. It's called Alfred, and it's a residential services company that aims to build community by fostering experiences within residential properties. Alfred's co-founders join us now, Marcella Saponi and Jessica Beck. Uh, ladies, thank you so much for joining us, as well as Bloomberg's own Ed Hammond. So let's start here. Uh, Marcella, tell us why you founded Hello Alfred, why you founded Alfred, and the mission of the company today. That's an easy one. So when Jess and I were working long hours and uh, building our careers, one thing we thought about was how do we make the places that we live in anticipate and support us? And that ultimately that was a way to keep more women in the workforce. And that vision has evolved a lot to really thinking about housing as a whole. And for us, Alfred is really about making housing focused on the consumer, putting the resident at the center of the value chain. And today, housing is the largest asset class in the world and therefore should be the largest consumer product. But it's really lacking in terms of a branded experience, real technology, and a focus on the consumer as the end user. So we're excited to disrupt and evolve the industry with industry players and to give renters more for their rent check. Now, the idea of tech-enabled property management is getting a lot of attention because, of course, Adam Newman just got this big check. Before we go there, why do you think this is such a big opportunity, Jessica? So I think that housing is one of the largest opportunities we have, both because of the lives that it hits, right? All of us consume housing, and no one's ever looked at it as a consumer product. And at the same time, I think housing is in crisis. If we look at the asking rents in most markets right now, they're 70% higher than they were for what's being paid. And we also have a housing supply problem. We need to build 5 million more apartments to meet the demand for housing. So given the impact that it can have on people's lives and the challenges facing it, I think it is ripe for a lot of attention and a lot of investment and a vision for what it can be. Jessica, as Emily just alluded to, there was, uh, or rather there is, sorry, a lot of noise around this space at the moment, partly because of what Mr. Newman has just announced with his new venture, Flow. He had a relationship that previously existed or maybe still exists with Alfred and with you guys as founders. Talk to us a little bit about that, how you got to know him in his family office and how that relationship really came to be in the first place. So... 
At Alfred, we've always taken a very collaborative approach for building our business. And that started, you know, eight years ago when we started working with our initial landlords and partners. And among our partners, you know, we don't only count Adam, but we count Graystar and Invesco and, you know, our venture capital partners, NEA and, and Spark. And I think the key from our perspective has been to build a business by working with the best in the industry and doing that bottoms up. And that means being part of a broad ecosystem and seeking out people in that ecosystem that see something very similar to you and want to have a hand in building that future. So that's the approach we've taken for the history of how we've built the company and, you know, is very much for uh, how we met Adam. And obviously, Alfred has its own product, a unique product. Um, we've just talked about the sort of this idea of owning the future of living. What is it that Alfred does that is sort of unique and gives it some protection against new competitors potentially coming into the space and looking to disrupt residential real estate in a similar way? So, Ed, if you look at the apartment space in particular, which is where most of us are um, actually living, and renters, in fact, are going to be the majority of um, home dwellers in the future instead of homeowners. So multifamily really hasn't evolved since the invention of the elevator. That is like the biggest innovation that's had the opportunity to disrupt the space. And the reason why we believe that uh, real estate, specifically residential, has been so resistant to disruption, today it takes only 1% of its budget and applies that towards technology, is because it's incredibly fractured. So to make a change, you can't just attack one part of the problem. You have to look at the entire value chain, and you have to align stakeholders in new ways that create value for everyone. So for us, what Alfred does that's so unique, we are the only prop tech company that's ever first really focused on the resident. We started with home management. We earned the right and the trust of consumers to provide services into the home. We then acquired a company that allowed us to build technology and automate the management of a full building. We then acquired a property manager that gives us full understanding of what it takes to drive an asset. And so what we're able to do when we put those three things together, which are very different businesses, but we create a flywheel. And we treat the consumer like they're the king. We add efficiencies with technology. We automate the entire resident experience from signing your lease, paying your rent, booking an amenity, booking a Peloton. Um, and it doesn't hurt that we make the owner more money, but we also make the neighborhood around the building more vibrant. We bring services into buildings. And we really think about real estate as it's not just about the rent check. It's about looking at retail, at looking at the building itself as a retail center for lifestyle and gaining access to the consumer wallet. So we're expanding the pie for everyone, we're changing the value chain, and we're doing that because we have these different core competencies that have taken us eight years of really hard work and evolution, building by building, shareholder by shareholder, building. Like we have 150,000 units on our platform in 52 cities across North America and US and Canada. And we're really proud of the resilience we've had to be able to build what we believe will be a generation-defining company. So Forbes has done some reporting on your experience with Adam Newman and how uh, you know his relationship with the company changed over the last couple of years. His representatives say he believes that the article is inaccurate and that he and his family office still support the company. What's your response to that and your assessment of this reporting? So. It's a great question, and I think a lot of people are asking probably similar questions. But the thing that I think is important is not necessarily 
what's accurate from a reporting perspective. It's what are we really focused on building and what have we done already to get us to this place? I think that this is a huge market and a lot of people see the opportunity here and that is something worth investing behind and investing in. And as Marcella said, the thing that we're really focused on at Alfred is what we've built today and where we want to take this in the future. We've only scratched the surface of what's possible in this market. We have 150,000 units, but that is small compared to the overall market size, not just in the U.S., but globally. And I think that's really where we should focus the conversation and bring the resources, whether they are part of our company or part of other companies, to bear in solving what housing can be in the future. That said, Mark Andreessen wrote in a blog post that Flow aims to build, quote, the future of living. And if you look at your website on the homepage, it says, welcome to the future of living. I know that that can mean a lot of things, but how do you feel about that? And, and, and do you believe there's a conflict of interest here? Well, what we know for sure. I think the future, sorry, go ahead. Go, no, go ahead, Jay. Marcella, why don't you take it? I think the future of... Go ahead. Um, what I was going to say is that Andreessen is a storied firm and a fantastic investor, and we're excited about the attention that they're bringing to the space, obviously with the largest check they've ever written. We have raised ourselves $100 million over eight years, um, and there is a difference between those two numbers. Um, and we uh, do see the... Um, opportunity to continue to expand um, to our investor set, but I, I don't. I want to comment on our on other businesses as much as I really want to focus the conversation on ours. Marcella, just on the on the question of funding, and look, obviously, Andreessen has put in a very large amount of money now into this space, which suggests they have serious appetite here. Have you guys, has Alfred had a conversation with them about getting backing? Is it something you would now look to do? Clearly, as I say, they are very interested in the space. Yeah. So, um, you know, we have lots of investors. We're talking to lots of investors. But one thing I would note is that the company is on a path to profitability, and we are a self-sustaining company that's been doing work for eight years. This is not an idea that um, is on a whiteboard. We really feel like we have the horse by the mane, and there's something really big here. Um, in terms of talking to other investors, especially ESG investors, we have a ton of appetite. Um, I would say that one thing that I hope... Um, uh, a positive silver lining that comes out of this is the way we think about venture, um, especially for female-led companies, only 2% of venture dollars in the past year have gone to female-led companies, and that's shrunk year over year. And I, I really want to put um, some emphasis here in saying that female-led companies are no less, um, the ideas are no smaller, and our ability to execute is no less. And I think that there's a huge arbitrage opportunity for backing female founders, and um, especially in this space. And I believe that the future of living will require lots of collaboration across many different companies, and that that's the new form of disruption, especially where we require so much change across so many stakeholders in a very complicated value chain. Jess, I'd love to give you a chance to weigh in on this question as well. Obviously, we know that you know, women are historically underfunded uh, in Silicon Valley, have a much harder time raising money, and here we have, idea aside, you know, a controversial male founder getting a very big check. Uh, you know, what sort of feelings, uh, what was your reaction to that number? 
Yeah, I think that I mean, it's a great point, and it's certainly not lost on us. I think the positive sp- sort of view of it is it's time for a lot of investment to go into this space, and this is raising the awareness and the, uh, the visibility of housing and the rent- rental residential real estate market as an opportunity. And I think that size of check, particularly from Andreessen Harwich, which is a terrific company, really validates that market and puts a spotlight on what, um, you know, I think hasn't been as visible previously. So, you know, I think Marcella spoke to some of the um, other elements of it, but if we kind of look into the future, we, we can take that as a benefit for sure. Obviously, both of you have worked very closely with Ms. Newman in, in this company and sort of over that period of time in the relationship. Now looking at him starting his own business in the space, whether or not he competes directly with what you guys do, what is it going to take for Flo to be successful in this market uh, as it comes in as a sort of as a new entrant? I think, as with any business entering a market, it really comes down to understanding the customer. And when we started Alfred, we started by focusing on the resident and focusing on the way that we could impact their life and give back time past the front door of their home. And that's how we really built the company, by listening to what does a resident need, what does a consumer need in the housing market, and how can we begin to deliver that? And I think that is going to be true of all businesses entering this space, um, and probably not only just for the resident, but how can we make the um, operators, the folks that work in these buildings, lives easier? How can we elevate all of the attention in the space just for the benefit of everyone? And listening and really thinking from the consumer perspective and the customer perspective, I think is critical for that. So bigger picture, obviously, we are battling inflation. You've got consumers under pressure. We are potentially going into a recession. You know, how do you assess how many people are going to want to pay more for the kind of services you provide? Do you see this as a luxury or a necessity? Marcelo, I'll let you take that. So I think the really important thing that we are doing is it's not about increasing rent prices. It's about how do we do things more efficiently How do we use technology to automate processes, to anticipate needs, to deliver services that allow new revenue to come into the building, and effectively increasing the size of the pie, not just by asking the resident to pay more. And we really think that, as you've seen, the rental prices and increases to the rental housing market have been so extreme, and there has not been a subsequent increase in the value proposition. You're still getting those four walls. And what we believe is fundamentally people want to rent a lifestyle and rent a home, and that we can provide that with putting our technology in, staffing these buildings a little bit differently, training people to hotel standards, moving property management from a focus on maintenance and rent collection and trash collection to really how do we make a resident's life fantastic? How do we build a community? How do we make people feel a sense of place and a sense of home? So it's not just about uh, how do we jack up the rent prices, it's how do we serve the consumer in in a better way. All right. The co-founders of Alfred, Marcella Sapone and Jessica Beck, thank you both so much for joining us along with our very own Ed Hammond. Regulators are taking a close look at how Twitter calculates the number of spam and bot accounts on its platform. In June, the SEC wrote a letter to Twitter's CEO asking to disclose the methodology used in calculating the bot situation. In response, Twitter's lawyers told the SEC that it already adequately discloses 
the methodology that it uses. Twitter's estimate has become a central sticking point between the company and Elon Musk, who's looking to walk away from a $44 billion buyout of the platform. Here to discuss Bloomberg's Kurt Wagner. So, Kurt, bring us up to speed. Obviously, you know, there was another hearing today. The whistleblower allegations we learned about yesterday. Now, potentially the SEC is involved. How so? Yeah, well, the allegations from the whistleblower kind of hit on two important things. One, as you pointed out with the SEC, is that, you know, he claims that Twitter's been lying to shareholders, right? If the company is indeed hiding the number of bots that make up, you know, part of its user base or something like that, that could be a securities violation uh, and that could be a huge reason for the SEC to investigate. Now, on the privacy side, a lot of these allegations were also that the company wasn't doing enough around privacy. Twitter and the FTC gone into a consent decree back in 2011 that the company would make all kinds of changes to its privacy practices. And, uh, you know, this whistleblower says the company hasn't done that. So now both regulatory agencies essentially have a good reason to, at the very least, ask Twitter what's going on and seek clarification about what this whistleblower claims. What happened at the latest hearing and how does it potentially move the ball forward? Well, the two sides have been fighting for a while as to you know, who should be bringing the information about bots forward, right? Elon Musk and his camp basically say that Twitter has not been forthcoming. Not only have they not shared the information with him directly, but they're not being willing to put forward employees who do have access to that information or expertise, right? And Twitter, of course, is arguing the opposite. Hey, we put everyone forward that needs to be. So right now, they're trying to settle that in court. One of the issues is that Musk's lawyers, you know, they want access to this whistleblower, right? They think he uh, certainly qualifies as, as someone who would be an expert on this kind of stuff. So they're working with the judge right now to basically figure out who does Twitter need to put forward and make available uh, as part of this trial to answer some of those bot questions. Now, obviously, we're still learning more about these whistleblower allegations. I'm curious what you're hearing from your, your sources. I'm hearing that, you know, Twitter is looking at the same redacted document that, uh, you know, appears in the Washington Post. There's a lot of information that is, you know, not there or that they can't see. Um, what more have we learned about this complaint and the intentions of uh, the person making the complaint? Yeah, I mean, I can tell you there's a lot of people who work at Twitter now or recently who are not happy with, with this, right? And that sounds obvious, but they see this as uh, either unfair or, or certainly uh, not reflective of what they truly believe to be happening at the company. And the timing is very suspect, right? Because a lot of these claims uh, seem to echo at least some of the stuff that Elon Musk and his lawyers are saying. And so there was an all-hands meeting today with employees. I think management, my understanding, has reiterated a lot of the things that we read in the email from CEO Parag Agrawal yesterday, Emily, when we were on the show, right, that he was basically saying, hey, uh, th you know, this is false. These allegations don't have any merit to them. But, you know, at this point, if you work at Twitter, you're you're just frustrated. You're annoyed, right? You're going through this whole process already. Then this uh, allegation comes on top of it. It just kind of is snowballing right now, I feel like, for the company. And, and I start to sense that when I talk to people who are who are there or who were recently there. Right. It's been going on now quite a while, uh, many months. Uh, okay, Kurt Wagner, thank you for that update. Appreciate it.
Turning to earnings into its fourth quarter report, better than expected, led by the company's small business unit, which grew 20% year over year. But some of Intuit's businesses facing headwinds from government changes to the tax system, including part of President Biden's Inflation Reduction Act, which allocated money to study the creation of a government-run tax filing system. Here to talk about all of that, Intuit CEO, Sasan Ghadarzi. Uh, Sasan, let's start with the numbers. Uh, you know, obviously they looked good. Interesting to see the number of small businesses increase coming out of a pandemic. How is this informing your outlook? Hi, Emily. Thank you for um, having me. You know, we're uh, excited about our outlook. You know, when we uh, look at the, the macro environment, there's two things I would say. One, uh, small businesses uh, do worry uh, about the economy. Um, however, at the same time, consumer spending is strong. Uh, the small business performance is strong, but they're trying to, to manage, um, you know, the rising inflation, um, the costs going up with their supply chain, costs going up with workers. So they're, they're working through managing all of that, but they're very resilient. If I then shift to our platform, it's really why our platform is probably more mission critical now than ever before. You know, we are not um, a line item. Uh, on a small business budget. Uh, we are the platform that they use to be able to power their prosperity and, uh, and run their business, which is hence uh, reflected in our results, but also reflected in the overall company guidance that we provided and specifically the segment guidance around small business. So we are excited about the future. I'm curious what demand trends you're seeing. You've got other software ventures seeing lengthening sales cycles. I'm wondering if that's something that you're finding as well. We're not seeing that because the small businesses, Emily, that we serve are either you know one-person shop or all the way up to about a hundred employees, uh, and and these uh, small businesses really use our platform to be able to you know manage their customers, grow their customers, to be able to manage their their cash flow. So these are not really enterprise uh, sales, so we don't see um, the sell cycle uh, extending. In fact, what we are seeing is just more reliance on our platform, especially in this environment, to be able to fuel their success. I do want to ask about this Inflation Reduction Act situation. Part of uh, this involves money to study the creation of a government-run tax filing program, which could completely disrupt TurboTax, one of your key products. How much does that concern you? Yeah, well, first of all, to set context exactly as, as your question states, um, the IRS got about $15 million to do just a study of what it would take for the IRS to create um, a tax uh, platform. With that as context, you know, the first thing I would say is free taxes is available to all Americans through private industry, whether it's our, us or our competitors. And so from an availability of free, talks, uh, free software, it's already uh, available. I think secondly, you know, we're big advocates for the consumer. You know, they know the story of their life better than anybody else when it comes to deductions for their, their taxes. They really know their story better than anybody else. And, and I think we'll have to let the consumer decide, you know, what is most important in terms of where they want the IRS to focus. Is it about the refund experience or is it about uh, creating tax software? For us, it's really an immaterial event. It's a non-event because free tax software is already available to all Americans. And this could yet be another free tax software. So that's the way we see it. Uh, that said, I mean, you, you have to be planning ahead. Are you thinking about strategy, contingency plans, if something like this could come to fruition? 
Well, really not, because we already have free software that, you know, if you look at the last uh, nine years, we've served over 113 million consumers that have filed their taxes for completely free. This past year was about 13 million customers. So it really doesn't change anything that we are doing. We have uh, a platform that you can do it yourself, and uh, for certain customers, it's free. We also have now a live platform that gives us the ability to serve the assisted market, those that need expertise, which is really our biggest uh, growth driver. So it really doesn't change our strategy at all. And frankly, I think the government has been back and forth for the last 25 years thinking about uh, exactly this, uh, this study. And for us, it really doesn't change anything. You also recently appointed a new leader of the MailChimp division. Talk to us about the strategy there and how you see this continuing to fit into the business longer term. Yeah, Emily, we're very excited about MailChimp. You know, the whole reason why we acquired MailChimp is it plays a role in helping small businesses grow customer base. So it helps them market to new customers on different channels. It helps them manage their existing customers. And, and one of the things that, you know, we see as a huge opportunity is to how to marry uh, a platform capability that not only helps a small business grow their customer base, but manage their cash flow, which is where QuickBooks comes in. And so bringing those two platforms together allows us to have a one-stop shop to really fuel the prosperity of small businesses. And MailChimp has incredible capabilities. Uh, we just appointed a new leader uh, to work hand-in-hand -hand with the team there, um, Rania. She has been actually leading our payments group very successfully. And now she's going to be leading both MailChimp and payments. And it's an opportunity to really marry growing customers and managing your cash flow uh, in one place. So we're really excited about the opportunities ahead. All right, the CEO of Intuit, Sasan Ghadarzi. Thank you, Sasan, for joining us. Thanks. Good to have you back. What if everyone at work were an expert communicator? What if every doc, message, and email they wrote was perfectly clear and concise? Inbox numbers would drop, customer satisfaction scores would rise, and everyone would be more productive. That's where Grammarly comes in. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that understands your business and can transform it through better communication. Companies that use Grammarly save an average of 19 days per employee per year. That's because with Grammarly's AI, what used to take a few hours only takes a few clicks, like generating an instant first draft in your company voice or tailoring a message to your specific audience and goals. And Grammarly's personalized on-brand writing help is built in everywhere your team works, across 500,000 apps and websites. Plus, it's safe, secure, and already IT-approved. Join 70,000 teams who trust Grammarly with their words and their data. Learn more at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said. Done. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF.
Crypto Report as both Wall Street and the crypto world are waiting to hear from Fed Chair Jay Powell at Jackson Hole this Friday. Bitcoin, meantime, could be headed for another downward slope with the largest cryptocurrency down more than 50% this year already and sitting in a range of about nineteen dollars to $25,000. Let's bring in Valkyrie Chief Investment Officer Stephen McClurg for his read on this along with our own crypto contributor, Shanali Basik. Thank you both so much for joining us. So, Stephen, do you think Bitcoin has further to fall and how far, like below 20 or not? Absolutely, thanks for having me. Well, I do believe that Bitcoin has a little bit further to fall from where it is today. Uh, we are pretty close to the bottom. And from here, I think uh, in the long run, we're gonna be doing just fine, but really everything depends on macro at the moment, uh, inflation, as well as what risk assets do in a hawkish Fed. Hawkish Fed, I think about the letter that Dan Moorhead of Pantera wrote to investors. I got it in my inbox today, and this idea that rates are going much higher than is expected. How is that going to play into where Bitcoin goes next? Yeah, so is anytime that liquidity is being taken out of this, uh, the system, which is what's happening right now, all risk assets uh, will continue to fall. So Bitcoin, luckily, and, and also unfortunately, earlier this year, uh, did fall quite a bit due to some local contagion risk. But Bitcoin is the first asset to go. We're waiting for the rest of the financial markets to catch up. And by the way, I agree with Dan that we do have a lot further to go as far as rate hikes. Mm -hmm. We think uh, rate hikes, we think we'll see the Fed target rate somewhere between 375 and 400 by the end of the year. So what does this mean for non-Bitcoin crypto assets? What does it mean for Ethereum, which is about to hit a really pivotal moment in its life cycle? People fall on two sides of the merge here. You have some that are selling into the merge, some that are kind of Bitcoin maxis here that are really more focused on the benefits that mining provides. How do you feel about this move to proof of stake? Well, I don't necessarily think uh, move to proof of stake is a great thing for Ethereum in the short run. In the long run, it might actually work out, but the Ethereum network is actually more secure as proof of, as proof of work. And that's what really makes Bitcoin the most secure network is a long period of time through proof of work where essentially you have computers or validators that are validating transactions all over the world in a decentralized manner. When you move to proof of stake, that, that really falls into the hands of a few and those are the ones that stake their tokens to master nodes or, or validators. Uh, this is how some other more enterprise-related blockchains work, such as Avalanche or Zilliqa, where, uh, where there's a more enterprise application. But in terms of Ethereum goes, uh, the security will you know, need to be seen how that's going to work out because you know, we, we really think that if you're holding, say, a you know, million-dollar-plus NFT, and you're relying on the Ethereum network and it's changing right now, that may not be a great place to be right now. Okay, so where are you placing your bets? Obviously, Valkyrie has exposure to, you know, the largest cryptocurrencies by market cap. You know, you know which ones are you leaning into and leaning out of? Yeah, right now, Bitcoin is really the, the flight to safety uh, for a lot of our funds and where we're really looking at. Uh, some of the more established proof-of-stake protocols are also a great place to be. 
uh, places like uh, Avalanche and, and Zillica. So these are these are the ones that we're really looking at to uh, to move into. Uh, we also have active accounts where we can take risk off the table in times of uncertainty like we did at the beginning of this year through through most of the year. Uh, so we're really moving out of anything that uh, has too much exposure to ETH right now until we see this merge goes through sometime in middle September and into some of some of the safer, uh, you know, larger uh, crypto protocols. What about Solana? How do you feel about that, given more of the NFT ecosystem is also going towards Solana? You think about Magic Eden and the success that they've had there. Do you, but also very polarizing in terms of an asset. Do you think that that has any room to benefit as if some of the things you're saying about Ethereum plays out? Yeah, Solana is really one of those blockchains that uh, sacrifice security for speed. Uh, it's still a work in progress. Uh, I don't think it's necessarily a flight to safety, especially if you care about safe, uh, security right now. And that's really our biggest fear on Ethereum is, will it turn out to be in this in this new entity as proof of stake protocol, more like Solano and a lot less like Bitcoin. So, uh, so we're cautious on Solano, though we're not selling it. Where does Ethereum end the year? Are you selling Ethereum? We, we, we think that Ethereum very well could get back to 1,000 or even lower if the merge doesn't go well. If the merge does go as expected, and, and by the way, there's not a whole lot of doubts out there that it won't, but there is a big risk that it will, then we could see Ethereum really rally. So we're kind of holding off until September before we make any big bets on Ethereum. All right. Uh, Valkyrie Chief Investment Officer, thanks for helping us uh, navigate all, all the different things you're working through. Stephen McClurg, uh, appreciate it, along with Bloomberg's Shanali Basik. Microsoft's head of gaming, Phil Spencer, says he is optimistic the company's $70 billion deal to buy Activision Blizzard will be approved. If that happens, Spencer will inherit a video game hit maker with a controversial leader. I spoke with Spencer for a wide-ranging interview in the latest edition of Bloomberg Studio 1.0. Here's some of our conversation. You know, I, I kind of come at this that big deals should be scrutinized, mm -hmm. right? I think that's the role of, of regulators, why they're in place. I feel good about the progress that we've been making, asking good, hard questions about, okay, what is our intent? What does this mean? If you play it out over five years, is this constricting a market? I feel good about it. So you're confident the deal's gonna happen? I've never done a $70 billion deal, so I don't know what my confidence means. I will say the discussions that we've been had, that we've been having seem positive, mm -hmm. um, and we're actively engaged in the conversations, trying to be transparent about what our motivations are. Well, Activision specifically is facing a lot of challenges here. There have been lawsuits, there have been employee walkouts, there have been accusations of sexual harassment, sexual assault. So how much did that concern you when you were thinking about this deal? We had access to data from the company before we, we announced the acquisition to see what the actual numbers were in terms mm -hmm. of reports. Um, we definitely, as a team, signed up to say, just like we're on our own journey with Xbox, that we're going to expand that journey if this deal closes. It's a lot of people and a lot of people that will feel very dedicated to and committed to to building a great workplace environment for them. That's true of any of our studios, mm -hmm. right? Um, but it's obviously a conversation that you're going to have. You think about the board of Microsoft, and when they're thinking about the deal and they're typing into their search engine, 
Activision, what are the headlines that they're coming back? And there were questions that we had. We've learned from this. We will continue to learn. Um, and we're committed to that, that journey, not only for the betterment of our teams, but our customers, the creators on our platform. Uh, we think it's critical to our business success that we make progress here. Is Bobby Kotick going to stay on? Yeah, I'm not in a position to make comments about their leadership team. We're in the regulatory phase and, and how that will close. Like w when the deal closes, then we have say in how they're managed and how it goes. But until that point, I'm, I'm not really in a position to say. There have been very specific allegations of Bobby being aware of things uh, that happened and not reporting it to the board. What has he communicated to you about what he knew, what he didn't know. The discussions we've had were about the teams, where they're at, can they make the progress they need to make, because the closing is a long process. Are they putting in the work that they need to put in to move along their journey? And I believe they're committed to that. When I look at the work that they're doing now, there's always more that can be done. Activision has divisions that are unionizing, and I know Microsoft has said they'll recognize those yeah. unions. What does that look like? I've never run an organization that has unions <laughs> in it. So, I, But what I can say in working through this is we recognize workers' needs to feel safe and heard and, and compensated uh, fairly in order to do great work. Mm -hmm. So we thought it was important to make a public statement on that front for workers that are there that are making decisions about their employment and how they want to, you know, what that relationship looks like to understand what it would mean if Microsoft was able to close the deal. You can watch my full interview with the Microsoft Gaming CEO, Phil Spencer, coming up 9.30 p.m. Eastern time right here on Bloomberg Television. And that does it for this edition of Bloomberg Technology. Thursday, John Wu of Ava Labs joins us to talk about the latest with Avalanche and the crypto downturn. And don't forget to check out our podcast. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Emily Chang in San Francisco. This is Bloomberg. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF.